Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the KSS Deanery. And this is a podcast about general medicine for anyone in healthcare. Published in association with the Education Department at the Royal College of Physicians. The aim of this podcast is to demystify medicine, recap and clarify general medical topics. And we will also cover some interesting historical facts. And this week we are going to focus on pulmonary embolisms. So we're going to start with a case. Brilliant. This week, we're going to start with Mr Oak. Now, he was sent to the ambulatory care unit by his GP. He is a 53-year-old man with a two-day history of right-sided chest pain, pleuritic in nature. A slight cough was noted, but no haemoptysis. There was some shortness of breath, especially when walking upstairs. He denies fever and palpitations and has still been able to work. Now, on examination, he looks very well. His heart rate is 86 beats per minute. His blood pressure is 136 over 86. He has a respiratory rate of 16. His heart sounds are normal and his chest is clear. And there are no peripheral signs of a DVT. So, are you worried? Right, so a few things in the history that stand out. So, obviously, middle-aged gentleman, 53, two-day history Mm -hmm. of right-sided chest pain. So, it's not, not the most acute presentation. He's been sitting on it for a while seems to be going sort of daily business as usual you know he's at work um gets breathless on exertion but i get breathless going up the stairs so it's not really you know that significant um given the examination findings and he's hemodynamically stable um uh, chest is clear so actually sounds relatively well yep um but the only snag is if it's been referred as a pleuritic chest pain yeah. um, that's something for us to sort of delve in a bit further, I think. So what sort of things would you be thinking about with pleuritic chest? So it's just a typical presentation of APE. Okay. Um, but given those observations and things, I'd want to try and disprove it quite quickly. Okay. So if you think this man has a PE, how are you going to diagnose a PE? What so, sort of things are you going to do? Yeah, so kind of on the shop floor, I, I try and get the things most quickly um so things like an ecg um i'd get some blood tests get an x-ray done uh, just to make sure there's no other signs um on the chest you know such as consolidation or whatever pneumothorax um, get some blood tests uh, check his saturations as well um if he is a little bit hypoxic then maybe consider a blood gas um but i'll do all the sort of basic tests to see if there's any cardinal features of a pe Okay, and interestingly there, you mentioned an ECG. Yeah. So what findings are you going to look for on the ECG of somebody who's got a PE? So the thing that I think is the most common is sinus tachycardia. Um, And then I'm also looking for things that show right heart strain. So any right axis deviation, right bundle branch block. Um, There's the textbook sort of description of S1, Q3, T3. Um, but actually, in my experience, it's actually been quite rare to, to just have that finding. Um, also, anyone of that age with chest pain, you've got to make sure that they don't have a myocardial infarction, say. So you're looking at kind of the ST complexes as well. Yeah. And other things that you may see on an ECG, a little bit more unusual are um, you may see um, T-wave inversion in V1 to V4 and also in the inferior leads. So leads 2, 3 
and AVF. Yeah. So it's also important to look at that. Now, the NICE has a very good guideline on the management of venous thromboembolism and also the investigations. And as well as your routine bloods, so your full blood count, use and ease, they also say do a chest x-ray, as you mentioned, looking at the causes of chest pain. Now, are there any signs on a chest x-ray that will lead you to think this might be a pulmonary embolism? So if it's a massive one, um, I would think about you know, sort of wedge infarcts. Okay. Um, sometimes you can see this triangular shape opacity. Hampton's hump? Uh, yes, quite possibly. I like that name. Um, I'd also look sort of, although it's not the most specific uh, finding, but also the shape of the heart. Again, if it's sort of enlarged or, you know, thinking of some engorged uh, sort of veins from right heart strain. So prominent um, pulmonary artery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but mainly it's just to rule out that there's not anything else going on in the lungs which can, can cause those symptoms. Yeah, and you've also got Westermark sign. And Westermark sign is an area of oligemia within the lungs. So it's basically an area of blackness where you can't really see the lung markings. And that's distal to an affected um, blood vessel. Right. So I've never seen it. But again, <laughs> it's something that the textbooks always say. Yeah. Okay, so you've done all your nice guidelines, you've done your chest x-ray, and you're still querying a pulmonary embolism. So there's one thing that you can look at, and that's the Wells score. Yeah. So if you're suspecting a PE, the Wells score is a clinical decision tool, which basically looks at the pre-test probability of patient having a pulmonary embolism. So um, if we suspect a PE, we then have to look at other things. So we can look at the signs and symptoms of a DVT. Is an alternative diagnosis less likely? Is his heart rate greater than 100? Has he been immobile for more than three days or had surgery in the last four weeks? Has he had a previous DVT or PE, any hemoptysis or any malignancy? Now, if you score more than four on this and each individual set has a different score, if you score more than four, a PE is likely. If you score less than four, a PE is unlikely. Now, if you score more than four, you go straight to investigations. So either do a CT, pulmonary angiogram, or a VQ scan. And if you do less than four, you do a D-dimer. So Mr. Oak, he would score zero. Yeah, he's pretty low. Yeah, so his pretest probability is zero. So we need to go ahead and do a D-dimer. Now, a D-dimer is a fibrid fibrinogen degradation project. Um, basically, you get it when clock breaks down. So if it's elevated, it can be high in a blood clot. However, it's also quite non-specific yeah. and often a marker of inflammation. So infection, pregnancy, lots of things can cause it to rise. So proceed with caution with your D-dimer. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my experience, um, so on take, it's, it's very much about the context. Absolutely. Um, you shouldn't be getting referrals just based on a D-dimer. Um, you know, it's about the history, the presentation, because... Uh, frequently, you know, in a lot of those conditions, such as sepsis, as you mentioned, um, will have a D-dimer, but it's not really relevant unless it's this gentleman, pleuritic chest pain, can we rule out a PE? Yeah, exactly. So um, we do a D-dimer and the negative range for a D-dimer is, in this case, is less than 0.5 and Mr. Oak's D-dimer is 0.9. Okay. So we're going to need to do some tests. Yeah. Okay, so... This is where we can now look at the British Thoracic Society guidelines. Can we manage this patient as an outpatient in the ambulatory setting or do we need to admit him? We know he's going to need further investigations, but keeping him in hospital 
you know, for one, two, three days is actually probably not the best option for the patient. So the aim of the guideline is basically looking at the fact that we're seeing an increasing amount of people with query pulmonary embolisms in an ambulatory setting, but they're actually very, very well with them. So you can risk stratify Mr. Oak and decide whether he needs to come in or we can send him home and be managed as an outpatient. Now, currently, across many trusts within the National Health Service, there are lots of differences in care with management of PE. So the aim of this guideline is to standardise the management. So, can we send Mr Oak home and can he have tests done as an outpatient? Now, to make this decision, we look at the PESI score. That's a Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index. Now, this was originally developed to predict 30-day mortality, but has now been extrapolated and is used to assess risk um, to look at outpatient management. So, um, what's his PESI score? The way that you score his PESI is you look at his age, is he male or female, comorbidities, is his heart rate more than 110, does he have a systolic blood pressure less than 100, does he have a respiratory rate more than 30, does he have a temperature of less than 36, oxygen saturation is less than 90, and an altered mental status. And if you score positive for any of these, you get a final number. And all this can be found in the show pages. We won't go into any more detail at the moment. But his PESI score is very low. Yeah. Okay. And it can range from very low, low, intermediate, high to very high. So his is very low. So if he scored very low, we then have to use our exclusion criteria. A little bit of repetition here. But if his heart rate's more than 110, if his blood pressure's less than 100, saturations of less than 90... Active bleeding, is he on full dose anticoagulation at the time of the PE? Is his pain so bad that it requires opiates? Comorbidities requiring admission, CKD stage four or five, severe liver disease, hit or heparin induced thrombocytopenia in the last 12 months and social reasons. If he's negative on all of those, then yes, we can think about sending him home right. and investigating as an outpatient. Have you got all that? I think I've made a note <laughs> of it all, yes. Excellent. <laughs> So we can now send him home because he's PESI. We've also got the yes, PESI as well, which is a shortened version. Again, very well validated. That's worth looking at. We can send him home. But we still need to do some tests. Yes. Okay, so how are you going to investigate this man for his PE? So I would organise a CTPA for him. Mm -hmm. um, so happy that he's stable to go home, but I would want to get him a CTPA either, you know, that day if we're lucky um if not the next day afterwards and the guidelines do strongly suggest that the investigation should be on the same day um or at least within 24 hours okay um and i know that in my practice that is not often the case yeah um just because of availability of tests and lack of awareness of the guideline really okay so you mentioned a ctpa any other tests you might want to do um could consider an ultrasound Doppler, but again, if there's no clinical signs of a DVT, that may not be necessary. Um, I mean, cardiovascularly, he sounds quite stable. ECG was normal, but yeah. uh, could also consider an echo. Um, okay, and what would you be looking for on the echo? So again, sort of any signs of right heart strain, um, anything that might suggest raised sort of pulmonary pressures, although again, echo is not the most accurate diagnosis uh, for that, although it is non-invasive. Um, 
and just usual cardiac function. So again, is there anything else that's causing his symptoms of breathlessness or um, or the chest pain? Okay, yeah, that's a good point, actually. And I hadn't really thought about doing the echo at that particular stage. I guess going on to that, you could also do um, BMP. Yes, so absolutely. Uh, and sometimes also a troponin. Yeah. Um, if it's kind of put the, if there's a P that's that large, that's put the heart under that much strain. Yeah. Um, perhaps that's another sort of easy test to get done. Uh, in the acute period. And I know certainly if I had a patient who had a raised troponin, a raised BMP, and you managed to get an echo in the unlikely event when he yeah. was waiting in ambulatory care, and it showed signs of right ventricular dilation, I probably wouldn't send him home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I guess we could also use those. And they certainly mentioned that in the guidelines, actually, that you can look at these for making a decision as to whether you, you know, admit or discharge the patient. Okay, so um, what about a VQ scan? So in my experience, I've, I've only come across VQ scans maybe a handful of times. Um, mm-hmm. It's my last trust especially, it's far easier to get a CTPA scan done on the day um, rather than a VQ scan, which ah. tends to take a bit longer. But obviously it's something that we consider in sort of pregnancy, um, sort of less radiation risk. Yeah, I mean... It's- in my experience, I often find that a VQ scan's easier to get than a CTPA. Oh, really? Yeah, um, particularly spec VQ scans, right. which there is evidence to show that they're actually very good at picking up pulmonary embolisms. Um, it just goes to show the difference in trusts, doesn't it? Um, a VQ scan looks at airflow and it looks at perfusion and sort of blood flow within the lungs. So any mismatch in these can indicate a pulmonary embolism. The problem you get with a VQ scan, and certainly, again, in my experience, is the result is often indeterminate. Yeah. So they have the VQ scan and it says, I can't 100% say there's a PE or 100% say there isn't a PE. Yeah. Then they have to have a CTPA anyway. Right. So it so, could prolong investigation time. and. Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's an interesting one. I guess it's what's available really within yeah. your trust and where you work. And, and I suppose do you also have to be clear of sort of a, a coexisting lung disease, such Absolutely. as a lung infection or yeah. sort of inflammatory lung disease or COPD or so, because that might also distort the sort of interpretation. Yeah, that's a really important point, actually. And one of the reasons why you must do a chest X-ray before you do a VQ scan, you can only do a VQ scan if the chest X-ray is normal. Yeah. So anything that may interrupt the the um, flow, the perfusion and the airflow, then obviously you can't interpret the VQ scan accurately. So that's a really good point. Okay, so you've booked his CT scan. Yeah. And it's going to be tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. We know that his PESI score is very low, so we can send him home. Are you going to treat him? Uh, yes, I would. I think we've excluded all, all the other things. I think it's reasonable to send him home with some treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my experience, it's either been unfractionated heparin um, or... Old school. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, but more recently, sort of uh, DOAX, um, yeah. direct oral anticoagulants. Um, sort of less painful, easier to administer, um, easier to keep track of. Yeah, and I know certainly that um, historically we always use low molecular weight heparin, um, sent them home, told them how to inject it in themselves, or they would come back every day until they had their scan. So, again, not very fair on the patient and also putting a lot more pressure on the hospital. However, now the guideline does suggest that you can use, as you say, uh, your DOAX as an alternative, so your direct oral anticoagulants. So, a Pixaban. Yep. And rivaroxaban are the alternatives of choice that they suggest. 
The problem with the other DOACs, such as a Doxabam, is that they need a bridging time. So they don't work straight away, and they often need to have low molecular weight heparin as well as the Adoxaban while the Adoxaban's getting to work. Yeah. So it's always worth bearing in mind. Also, um, warfarin. Yeah. So warfarin was one of those things as well that I certainly don't prescribe as much as I used to, whether that's rightly or wrongly. Um, but certainly over the last few years, I've noticed a decrease in prescriptions of warfarin. Yeah. Um, just because it's difficult to control, it's sort of inadvertently gives them more hospital appointments because they need blood checks and make sure they're getting the right dosage yeah. um, in the sort of crucial starting period, I suppose. However, in this chap, we don't have a diagnosis yet, so we just want to treat him until he has his scan. So we're going to send him home with rivaroxaban, 15 milligrams BD, until we have a diagnosis and he comes back for his CT scan. Now, I think it's key to remember here that why are we actually giving the treatment for the PE is to prevent further embolism. So um, it's known now that DOACs are non-inferior to low molecular heparin and the warfarin, so therefore very effective, but it's to prevent further embolic disease. It's not actually to treat this embolism that they've actually got at yeah. the time. Yeah. Okay. So um, he comes back in for his CTPA and it shows a small pulmonary embolism. Right. Okay. So we've got a confirmed PE. So again, at this stage, you can then use your, go back to your PESI and SPESI to determine whether he can be managed as an inpatient or as an outpatient. So you can actually manage the criteria in two settings. Initially, you can use it to determine whether they can go home and wait for their investigations. And then secondly, when you've got a diagnosis, you can use it to determine if they can go home and be treated at home or whether they need admission. So again, his PESI, we know is very, very low. So actually, he could go home and be managed as an outpatient. So um, we've got a man who's got a pulmonary embolism and it's been unprovoked. Does that worry you? Uh, it does slightly. So obviously, whenever we're diagnosing uh, something such as PE, you want to find out why. Um, given the history, the examination findings and the results to date, um, there's nothing obvious like a DVT. There's no long distance travel, uh, no obvious other risk factors. So I suppose with a man of his age, um, you always think about malignancy. Yeah. Um, so I think it would be prudent to perform some more investigations to um, look for that. Um, obviously the CTPA, if he's had it, will look at the chest, but it doesn't look elsewhere. Yeah, and the NICE guidelines on the management of venous thromboembolism are quite clear. If you've got an unprovoked DVT or PE, obviously do a comprehensive examination, chest x-ray, which has already been done, do a full blood count, check the calcium, check the liver function tests and do urine analysis. If they are over the age of 40, you must do a CT, thorax, abdomen and pelvis. And in, if they're a woman and they're over the age of 40, do a mammogram. Yeah. Okay, so it's really important that that's also completed. Um, so we've got a confirmed PE. We're going to send him home on apixaban or rivaroxaban, single drug regime, a lot kinder to the patient. He doesn't have to keep having INRs taken or anything like that. Um, and it also decreases his length of hospital stay if he was to be admitted and started on the low molecular weight heparin warfarin regime, then you have to wait for the patient to be in therapeutic range. And that can again prolong the hospital admission. So it's beneficial yeah. all round. Do you want to follow this man up? Um, 
I would consider it, given that it's unprovoked. So first of all, we want to make sure that someone's following up his sort of other investigations, make sure there isn't a malignancy or whatever. But um, I would want to follow him up maybe after he completes his anticoagulation and just make sure he doesn't have any um, sort of thrombophilic disorders that may have predisposed him to having it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the new guidelines do suggest that every patient should be followed up by, well, should be initially seen before discharge by a consultant um, or a senior clinical decision maker, so an ST3, ST4. And they should have face-to-face or telephone follow-up at least once in the first week post-discharge. And if relevant, should have follow-up with specialist uh, in venous thromboembolism um, within sort of in the next weeks or few months. I think it's crucial also just to make sure that the patient... Uh, and their symptoms are actually improving. Um, we don't want to be in a case where rare cases where anticoagulation isn't being as effective, and you know maybe if the clots are propagating or getting worse. Yeah. Um, although it's not going to be instant, it might be a few weeks down the line. Um, that yeah, as you said, any professional to check it. Yeah, absolutely. What about if you've got a pregnant patient who you think has got a VTE? So panic a little bit, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> always scary getting those calls as the med reg. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, you would want to treat the mother first and foremost. So you want to investigate. So yeah, VQ scan if possible, look at all alternative causes, do Doppler scans of the legs, make sure there's not a DVT. Yeah. Um, if you need to treat, you can, as far as I'm aware, still use low molecular weight heparin. Yeah. Um, but maybe not the DOAX. And we do know that in pregnancy, there's an increased risk of venous thromboembolism, about four to six times. So it's quite significant, and it's the leading cause of maternal mortality in the UK. So any pregnant woman, we always really have to think about, could this be a DVT or a PE? Um, there are some good green top guidelines by the Royal College of Obstetricians, and if a patient, pregnant woman comes in, who has clinical signs and symptoms of a DVT, you scan the legs. If they have no signs or symptoms of a DVT, then you do a chest X-ray, and this is fine during pregnancy. Obviously, all this has to be in conversation with the patient. So shared clinical decision-making is really important here, and that the patient is fully on board and they're not worried about sort of any radiation damage to the baby. Um, And then you go on to do a VQ scan or a CTPA. This is an eternal debate, I know, with maternal physicians and obstetricians and acute physicians as to which is the best. I think that you have to give the relevant data to the mum to make that decision about what the best option is for her. We know that CTPAs increase the risk of breast cancer in a pregnant woman in the future because the breast tissue is very, very uh, sensitive to the radiation, but it's still a very small increase on an already very low background risk. So it's not a huge risk. Um, VQ scans, um, there is some scatty evidence to say that it may increase the risk of fibromalignancies, leukemias, and the child later on in life, but again, the evidence is very patchy. So I think before you go to the patient, make sure you've got your information and your data up to date, relevant, read the latest guidance from the College of Obstetricians and then go from there. Yeah. And I think just echoing what, what we've said before is is do the basic bedside things first. So yeah, chest x-ray, obviously yeah. make sure there's nothing obvious there like a pneumonia. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I suppose just sort of throwing another anecdote from the past, um, 
if particularly if they're elderly yeah. pregnancies as well just think about maybe peripartum cardiomyopathy yeah. it's another cause of breathlessness Absolutely. And also important to remember is that you can't use the PESI, you can't use the S-PESI, D-dimers, doaxal warfarin in pregnancy. So a lot of it is based on clinical acumen. And you must, if you're lucky enough to have a maternal physician in your hospital, brilliant. If not, um, acute physicians, respiratory physicians and the obstetricians must be involved with this patient. Nothing wrong with clinical acumen. Absolutely. And again, the same um, if a patient has a background malignancy or is an intravenous drug user, again, you're going to be using the PESI and the S-PESI with caution. And particularly if they're an intravenous drug user, um, I often do admit um, yeah. if you think they've got a PE because they've often got something else going on. Yeah. I've, I see a lot of bacterial endocarditis, widespread DVTs, um, and they're often very sick. Yeah, and I suppose without meaning to stereotype a patient group, but you also want to make sure that they don't, you know, get lost in the system and they actually have their investigations. Yeah. So just a bit of interest of notes, an interesting fact on pulmonary embolism. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Rudolf Verkov. So he was born in Prussia in 1821 and studied medicine in Berlin. Now, he was actually the first to describe embolisms. Um, and prior to this, nobody really understood where PEs, DVTs came from. And he described the detachment of the smaller fragments of the clot or the softening thrombus within the leg, which was carried along by the blood flow and taken to remote vessels, such as the ones in the lung. And he also, on top of this, coined the term zoonosis, which was a trial of hypercoagulability, hemodynamic changes and injury to the endothelium which increase the risk of a PE. So patients often have two maybe more of these which can contribute to the development of embolism. Now he also was a very clever man yeah. and um, sort of discussed it was the first one to discuss leukemias, lymphomas, coined the term zoonosis so actually did quite a lot um, and actually thrombus um, this is a bit of a, an interesting one came from the term clot of milk. Right. In the Latin. So okay. thrombus actually means curd of milk or clot of milk. I did not know that. So, are you happy with Mr. Oak? Happy to send him home? Happy to send him home. Excellent. Treat him. Yeah. Follow him up. Yeah. And then hopefully uh, get him off treatment once he's completed that cycle. So... Excellent. Thank so, you very much. What are your learning points from today? Um, so it's nice to hear um, sort of the up-to-date guidance and the sort of validation of scores that um, we're hopefully all using in practice, particularly the PESI and S-PESI score, um, and that there's also a place for the sort of more older Wells score. Yeah. Um, just kind of focusing on, on the, the basic tests you can do. So, you know, even before that, history examination, but then chest X-ray, ECGs, blood tests, when to do a D-dimer, uh, the role of troponin and BNP. Um, and then actually, yeah, using those scores to uh, free up beds in hospital. So a lot of these PEs can actually be managed as an outpatient. Yeah, and for me, I think the key thing was knowing now that it's okay to send somebody home and the treatment can be with rivaroxaban and apixaban rather than the old-fashioned low-molecular weight heparin warfarin regime which we're often using and again the chest x-ray changes the westermark sign the hampton's hump the prominent pulmonary artery and the ecg findings so the right bundle branch block tachycardia s1q3 t3 right ventricular strain the t-wave inversion so all these it was really good to recap on those yeah and obviously a bit about verkov yeah brilliant 
Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.